Well, again, good morning to you. I'm Joel Wayne, one of the pastors, and it's just fun to be jumping back in to the James series. Pastor Jim led us back into that, looking at the first five verses of James chapter 4 last week, but uh, this week we get to look at uh, James chapter 4, 6 through 10. This would like to begin with. I'd like just to come down to where you are to begin, get my phone out here, and I'd like to take some selfies. Um, I'm serious. I think you'd be good. I want to just start right here. We've got some of the generation that would know what selfies are here. Um, and I'm not going to do anything to these pictures except put them on the Internet, so don't worry about it. Um, right there, nice little selfie. You could have a little more expression next time. Um, we'll come over here. Um, Oh, yeah, that's going to look good. Okay, and then I'd like to come over here. I think this side gets ignored too much. I don't like that, and I love this side. Um, we'll do a little selfie here. Um, oh, I like the hands in the back. Super. Uh, the reason I'm doing this is, did you know that the average millennial today, nothing's wrong with being a millennial, it's just a, a generational thing, will take over 25,000 selfies in their lifetime. I just took three, and I am not a millennial. Um, but over 25,000 selfies. Did you know that on average, they will spend over an hour a week determining which ones to send out? Every day on average right now, over 100 million selfies are being taken. And I think about that. I'm just going to throw this over there. If one of you want to grab that would be great. Um, that's my family. I'm not just giving someone else my phone. I wanted to make sure. We do have a rule, though. Um, I give my phone to anyone if you'll answer every phone call and every text promptly. That's kind of a rule that we have in every email. So we look at that and we go, wow. 100, 100 million selfies every day. And then on top of that, we look at the fact that over 25,000 selfies the average person will take in a lifetime. This is a millennial. The, the numbers escalate with the next generation, they say, because they've had the phone in their hand for so long. And so it just continues to grow and to grow and to grow. And then let me, I want to like to make sure that I communicate. It's not that there's anything wrong with the selfie. It can be a lot of fun, especially for those of you, some of you have just naturally abnormal um, long arms, right? You don't need a selfie stick. Everybody thinks that you used a selfie stick and you never did. It's just like you got a freaky long arm and good for you, right? That's a, like, today, a long arm for the millennials is a spiritual gift. And we, we should not have said that. I don't know why, but I, I don't know. Uh, it's just the way it is. And we're, the thing is, there's nothing wrong with it, but it just shows how consumed with self we are. And that's the problem. It's not wrong with taking pictures and all that. Good for you. I like, great, right? You want to take pictures with friends and show people maybe what you've been doing. I'm not going to get into all that. But what it's doing is it's breeding this mentality of look at me because you're going to take in one opportunity, you're going to go and you're going to get, hey, everybody, come here. We've got to get a picture. And you're going to come and do this. And then every single person, let's just focus on this group right here, okay? So I got the Locks and Van Koppenbergs, different people, the Harmsons. I'm going, okay, all of you who are just in that selfie that I took, before I send it out, you're all want, going to want to see it to see if you looked okay in it and if we need to take another one. Tell me I'm wrong. I'm not. 
I've been wrong a lot today, but I'm not wrong about that, right? And so we're going to take numerous, dozens of selfies to make sure that everybody's pleased with their look and the selfie that they took. And the fact of the matter is, especially for guys, you're going to look the same no matter what you do. Literally, we had family photos. Such a wonderful person here in the church said, hey, um, I can help you with family photos. So we did a family photo recently, and we had them at 3 o'clock. And at 2.45, my wife looked at me, and she goes, are you going to take a shower? I said, I got, please, I've got all day. She goes, you have 15 minutes, and you need more than that to make that look good. All right? And she's repented. It's good. And so, you know, it's just, you look at these things, and we're so absorbed with making sure that we look okay, and, and we're looking at that. And, and it's important because of how we look at the passage of Scripture today in James chapter 4. And it's really important for us to look at it. And I, I need to go ahead and tell you, I didn't say this in the first service, but as I was even preaching it, um, this is what gets me is, is God just constantly is convicting me. And, and you know that I believe that conviction is a blessing because it's God saying, hey, you need to change this so you can be closer to me. That's what I believe conviction does. And that's a, that's a wonderful blessing in our life. And God just keeps convicting me. And this is not the easiest of sermons to preach or to hear. So just go ahead and get ready for that because James is writing to all these believers and he's writing to people who need to be hearing truth. And he's talking about grace. He's talking about humility. And humility is hard for us because of selfies and everything else. Our world is telling people it's all about you. We've raised generations, no matter what generation you're a part of, we've raised people to say, hey, you're awesome. You're perfect just the way you are. I hate to tell you this, I need everybody's attention, at least on this. God made you in his image, and he loves you, and he adores you, but none of you are perfect. You are sinners in need of God's grace, and the beautiful part is he gave it in his son, Jesus Christ. And some people today, when they hear that, they go, whoa, did he just say I'm not perfect? You're not. You're not. Don't tell your kids that they are. Don't say, man, you don't need to change. You're perfect just the way you are. No, you're not. You are a sinner in need of grace. And James is reminding the believer of this. I told you it wasn't going to be easy today. So this is what he says. He starts throwing out what humility is. So I just want, I want to read James 4, 6 through 10 for us. And this is, this is the word of God. It says, but he gives more grace. Therefore, it says, God opposes the proud, but gives grace to the humble. Submit yourselves, therefore, to God. Resist the devil, and he will flee from you. Draw near to God, and he will draw near to you. Cleanse your hands, you sinners. Purify your hearts, you double-minded. Be wretched and mourn and weep. Let your laughter be turned to mourning and your joy to gloom. Humble yourselves before the Lord and he will exalt you. The world defines humility. The world, the world defines humility as a lowering of oneself in relation to others. The world defines humility as being a weakness. But what humility actually is, it's having a modest estimate of one's own importance. 
It's a simple way to be able to think about it. Humility is having a modest estimate of one's own importance. It's a godly perspective. Humility is a godly perspective of self. It's not a sign of weakness. In Numbers chapter 12, verse 3, we're told that Moses was considered to be the meekest man on earth. And we're sitting here talking about him thousands of years later because of his impact and how God chose to use him. Humility is strength under God's control. Humility is God's or is strength under God's control. And the fact is that God opposes the proud, but he gives grace to the humble. We know that. James 4, 6, God gives grace to the humble. Right? And anybody here in need of grace? Anybody? Raise your hand if you are. So you'd be, if that's the case, if we know that we're in need of grace, that means we go, okay, God gives grace to the humble. That means I bet I want to know what hum- humility is. I want to know what it is to be humble because if he's going to pour out some grace, I want some right here, and that means I need to be humble. The thing is, the less you believe you need grace, the less you care about it. And we're not speaking of grace a lot in the world today, it seems. And I don't don't hear people going around, hey, man, isn't grace just wonderful? I hear about a, a ball team or I hear about an event coming up this weekend or I hear about school that's going on or something with a big project at work. But I don't hear much about grace and I think part of the reason is because we don't feel that we need it. That's a concern. When we don't feel that we need the grace of God in our lives is a concern. Part of the reason why is because we're striving to be seen as righteous while we're living for self. And the thing is, the two cannot coexist. You cannot be seen as righteous while living for self. They don't walk together They are polar opposites. They push. It's that magnetic force that is pushing against one another. So we've even changed definitions. A lot of times when people say when it comes to humility or pride, they go, well, I'm not prideful. I'm just really good at what I do. It's pride. That's what it is. And so we've changed the language, and so often what we do now is we laugh about being good at something because then we can say, well, it's just the way God made me. He gave me this good. I'm just good at that. I'm not prideful, though. And we live in that tricky place because then we go, hey, as soon as you say you're humble, then you're not humble, right? It's like, ah. So we have to process this. And if you don't understand the importance of it, I want you to consider this. It says, but, but he gives, this is verse 6. I'm just going to walk through these verses for us. James chapter 4, 6 through 10. Start with verse 11 next week. There you go. Get ready for it. James chapter 4, verse 6. He says, therefore it says, God opposes the proud but gives grace to the humble. The word James is using here for opposes uh, is the Greek antiteso. A-N-T-I-T-A-S-S-O. It means that he is at battle with. He is in battle with those who are prideful. So in accurate, if you look at the original language in Greek, James chapter 4, verse 6, what it would be communicating is that God is in battle against the proud, but he gives grace to the humble. Think about that. God is in battle 
with the proud? Why don't you think Lucifer? What would cause Satan to think that he could oppose God? It would be pride. God is in battle against him. God is in battle with the proud. And so if you're prideful, you need to recognize God is in battle with you. Those are big words. That's why, we, that's why we love diving in to the context and looking at the entire passage and going, what's he really communicating here? And so if you're sitting back going, Joel, I already know everything. I don't need help. I don't have any wrongs. I don't have any problems. Be ready because God is going to be battling you. And I can tell you now who wins. So we find this. And so James, what we find is he's saying, listen, God is in battle against the proud, and he's giving grace to the humble. And so in verse 7, he says, so here's some things that you had better be doing. Now, these aren't nice little ideas and nuggets, so oh, maybe that, that'll make my life better. He's going to lay out, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to identify five things here. He's going to lay out to say, hey, this is how you better be living then. If you recognize your need for grace, because, guys, when, when grace sits on us, when we really go, Man, I, I don't have it all together. And I need God in my life. And I need him to bless me. I need his love. And I need his comfort. And I need his care. What that leads to is li living in freedom. Spiritual freedom. That's what it leads to. You don't care nearly as much about what others think of you or say of you because you're too concerned with trying to represent Christ. And it just leads to freedom. So he's saying, listen, this is what you need to be doing. You need to make sure God is willing to pour out his grace. And this is the thing. God's grace is so abundant and so amazing. And I feel like we're running around because of the way we live life. We're running around trying to catch his grace in solo cups. And he's going, don't you understand? An ocean will not hold it all. That's how loving he is. So these are some things he says. And it's just reminding us. That we can't live in grace without humility. In fact, Romans 5.20, a passage for you to write down possibly. Romans 5.20, you know how I am if you're new here. Um, I call out lots of passages and my goal is just to get you to read those throughout the week. Because I know a lot of people aren't going to open up the word throughout the week. So I'm going to give you some cheat ways uh, to, to do that. So uh, Romans 5.20 says, now the law came in. It came in to increase the trespass, but where sin increased, grace abounded all the more. One way to think about that is there's plenty of grace. God loves us that deeply, that much. There's plenty of grace. Receive it. And so we're going to look at what our response needs to be to our own brokenness and to God's grace. What does that response need to be? Why? Because humility is a fundamental part of the Christian life, of Christian faith. And your humility grows through encountering God. Your humility grows through encountering God. Your humility grows through encountering God. That's why reading the word, jumping into scripture is so important because it's one of the most powerful ways to encounter God. The more that you encounter the God, the more you recognize your need for God, and the more you're humble because you're appreciative of the grace that he's lavished upon your life. That's how it works. And so he jumps into verse 7 and he begins, so if you want to recognize God's wonderful grace, first thing you need to do is you need to submit yourself to God. Submit to God. That's number one. 
And submission, at least partially, is letting go of self. It's letting go of self. So we need to submit to God. And I would love to just fill these out, okay? Um, submission, at least partially, is letting go of self. It's a willing consciousness to the sovereignty of God, submitting to that. It's a loyal allegiance to Jesus Christ as Lord. And that's a, that's a popular word today. We love that word submit, don't we? The answer is no. I can't tell you how many people I've set in my office, premarital counseling, or even after they've been married, and I say, well, it talks about submission, and, and one of the people will say, uh-uh, don't go there. I'm my own person. And immediately I go, oh, no, you're not. You may be if you don't know God, but you're here in the pastor's office for a reason because you claim to know God. And if you claim to know God and you actually belong to God, you are no longer your own person. You have submitted everything in your life to Christ. You are now his slave. Please, someone say amen. And so people who want to stand for self are going to struggle with submitting to God because they don't really see a need of God unless they want to get what they want from God. And it's that vicious cycle. It reminds me of the passage of, of James where it talks about being blown, tossed back and forth by the wind and the waves and the sea. We find it so often. And so he says to submit to God. And when you submit to God, the thing is with submitting to God, it means that you, it will lead to standing against the devil why? Because Satan departs when we come under the lordship of Christ. What a promise. Satan is vanquished when we take our stand against him. Submission flows out of humility. And those who are not willing to submit are not humble in their spirit. Humility begins with the sense of subordination to God in Christ. Matthew 10, 24, that's why it tells us. Matthew 10, 24, it says that a disciple is not above his teacher nor a slave above his master. It tells us again, 1 Peter chapter 5, verse 6, and I'm going to come back and revisit some of 1 Peter 5 later on. But in 1 Peter 5, verse 6, it says that humble yourselves, therefore, under, it says humble yourselves under the mighty hand of God. That means to submit to him. And so we are to submit to God. And part of submitting is the second thing that he then mentions because he, he calls out and he says, submit yourselves therefore to God. And then he says, resist the devil. That's the second thing. We are to resist the devil. A lot of times when we think about the devil, we just go, well, why don't we ignore him? Ignoring will not do it. We need to stand against the devil. We need to fight against him, stand firm against him. We don't tuck tail and run. You can tell that's, when, when I grew up, we were talking about, you don't tuck tail if someone throws it out there for you, a challenge or anything else. You stand there and you fight and let's go. And we need to stand against the devil, against evil, against hatred, against all of these things that are berating our lives right now. And I know that we love a life in which we can control. I understand that we want things organized. I understand that we like things to be rational. But our world is telling us right now that God is not needed and that Satan is not feared. Well, let me tell you, God is needed. And God wins the day. 
one of the reasons we struggle with resisting the devil. And again, here's James writing to these believers scattered throughout and people who are struggling in their faith. And he's going, no, this is where you've got to remember. You must every day wake up and submit to God. And you need to resist the devil because he's going to be on his attack. And so he's saying, don't be intimidated. That's why it tells us in 2 Timothy chapter 1, verse 7, that we have not been given a spirit of timidity, but one of power and one of love. He's telling them to make sure that they stand against the devil, to resist the devil, to recognize that he's at work, to fight back. And one of the things that it comes down to is sometimes we simply want to be on the defensive. And as long as our own little world, our own little bubble is okay, we don't really want to do anything with it. But it's when we begin to lose ground that we get upset or something starts happening to somebody in our own realm of influence or our own circle of influence. And so then we get upset. And so then we want to say, no, God, what do I do now? That's why we must not always be on the defensive. And as believers in Jesus Christ, we need to be be on the offensive for Jesus Christ. And we need to take new ground, greater territory for the kingdom of God. It shouldn't be remaining the same or lessening. It should be growing. It means we're not going to wait for our families to crumble, our marriages to crumble, before we come before God in humility and say, God, I need your help. Because that's what's happening in the world today. We're waiting for everything to go wrong before we go, God, now I need you. What we need to say is, God, I know I need you no matter what. I'm coming before you and asking that you will infiltrate every fabric of my life and to use me to grow your kingdom. May your name be made known, not my own. Praise be to God. Instead of waiting for our businesses to fail and say, God, why aren't you blessing me? I'm trying to be faithful. From the very get-go, we say, God, this is your business. I don't care what the world may say. I will pray that it will always be yours and give glory to your name. I will do it with integrity. I will do it with morality because you cannot define morality apart from Jesus Christ. And I will stand on behalf of you. We don't wait for it to start crumbling. We don't wait for our marriages to be lost. We get on the offensive. That's resisting the devil, standing firm in God. One of the most powerful parallel passages to James chapter 4, verse 6 through 10 is 1 Peter 5, 5 through 10. I mentioned chapter 5, verse 6 earlier. It's a powerful parallel passage, 1 Peter 5, 5 through 10. And I want to read verses 8 and 9 to echo and to make sure you understand the insignificance of what I'm talking about here today when it talks about coming and submitting to God and resisting the devil. He says this, be sober-minded, be watchful. Like that means you're on, if you're being watchful, right, you're ready. Now you think about those who were defending countries before and, and they would have been on top of a tower looking for anything that could have come their way uh, to destroy them or to damage them or to hurt them or to kill them. And they were ready. He's saying to be watchful. You're, it says, your adversary, the devil, prowls around like a roaring lion, seeking someone to devour. Resist him, firm in your faith, knowing that the same kinds of suffering are being experienced by your brotherhood throughout the world. That's what it is to resist the devil, to be watchful, to stand firm in your faith, and to fight for Christ. And there are very few people fighting for Christ, it seems today, because we're simply fighting for self. God, help me. And I say that, and that's a big statement to make. Because, we were, because of the fall, book of, uh, go back to Genesis, because of sin, we're primarily concerned of self. It's, listen, I'm, I'm right there where people say, hey, 
Joel, this number of people are, are, are dying every day without the gospel ever hearing it. And I go, oh, I'm sorry to hear that. And then I have to ask myself, do I really care, though? Because it's not personal to me. And we can say that we care, but without actions, the care isn't seen, right? It's why we're so purposeful in how we spend monies that you guys give here at Chapel Point. So I literally just under one out of every four dollars goes right to missions. Boom, every time. Because we want our actions to reflect what our heart is screaming. And to go, wait a second here, what's going on? We have to resist the devil. Another thing that he says to do in verse 8, he says, then draw near to God and he will draw near to you. We need to draw near to God, and you draw near to God by allowing the Word to sit in you. You don't read the Bible for facts and figures. You, 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 you need to be reading the Bible to gaze upon God. Like this is, I tell you, one of the, I got to tell you, one of the greatest things about West Michigan. One, it never snows in January. Two, the sunsets. Are they not amazing? It's what truly, that's the one thing that makes me think that God just likes us more than everybody else. They're phenomenal sunsets. And the thing is, when I look at sunsets, I don't go, oh, man, I wonder how the rays of the sun are impacting this to make all these. I don't examine it that way. I go, I'm just gazing upon the beauty of God. And, and the facts and the figures and all that, they can be fun. And so when I read through Scripture, I'm not going, I just got to make sure I learn as much as possible. I'm going, man, I'm gazing upon the beauty of God. That's how you draw near to God. You're recognizing his splendor and his wonder and how magnificent he really is. It's that sunset, right? For me, it's even when you're married. It's my spouse who was up here. If you don't know the welcome person, that was my wife. Well, you're white. That was my wife. She's crazy about me. I tell her every day to remind her. And so what you do when you look at your spouse, you go, I can't believe, right? I look at her and I can't believe God gave me her to live life with. I know I don't deserve her, but nor does she deserve me. Because in humility, she should be thinking the same. And we're amazed that God would bring us together in our, in our weaknesses and in our sin and say, guys, I'm going to let you live life together and to grow the kingdom with one another. That's what it is. That's what it, that's what it feels like to draw near to God where you're amazed by his goodness. He continues on this same verse. He says in verse 8, cleanse your hands, you sinners. Purify your hearts, you double-minded. So cleanse your hands and your heart. Part of that, if I, if I were to look at my own translation, I started going, how would I say that? Like, biblically accurate, like, what would that be, mean? It means to me, cleansing your hands and heart, pay attention to your true desires and make sure that they are righteous. To me, that's how I would say it. Pay attention to your true desires and make sure that they are righteous. That those desires that you have in life are righteous. That's why we are always calling out, is your desire to be right or is your desire to be righteous? Because too many people are fighting to be right and few are fighting to be righteous. We don't need to be asking God to alter his desires to be like ours. We need to be asking God to make sure that our desires are like his. 
This is um, one way I would describe uh, cleansing your hands and your heart um, would be having childlike faith. And a passage I'll give you, um, Matthew 18, 1 through 4. And it's speaking about childlike faith. I want to read it for you. It says, Who is the greatest in the kingdom of heaven? And calling to him a child, he put him in the midst of them and said, Truly I say to you, unless you, inter- you turn and become like children, you will never enter the kingdom of heaven. And then it continues on, same verse. Listen to this. Whoever humbles himself like this child is the greatest in the kingdom of heaven. You see, children are naturally humble. Children are naturally teachable. This is why Jesus said that we must be like children. He's not telling us to be childish, by the way. He's telling us to be childlike. It's a huge difference. And the greatest are the most humble because the humble are willing to learn. They're willing to serve. And they recognize that they must not think too highly of themselves. God can't fill a person who is already full of self. And so we are to cleanse our hands and our heart. And as he continues on, he says, to cleanse those hands, you sinners, purify your hearts, you double-minded And then in verse 9, he says, Be wretched and mourn and weep. Let your laughter be turned to mourning and your joy to gloom. What he's communicating is this. Grieve over sin. Isn't that, that's a a popular message to share, isn't it? Woo! Grieve over sin. James, remember, he's writing to the people and they're scattered and they're all over the place and he's writing to believers and he's letting them know, listen, here's what you must do. God gives grace to the humble and you want to remain humble. That means you know your need of God's grace in your life and you need the dump truck to back up, beep, 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 dump it out and let it just fall all over your life. And that means you look at your own sin and it breaks your heart and you need to grieve over sin. Your arrogance, your pride, One of the deadly sins, right? You need to grieve over this desire to further your name and not his name. You need to grieve over the pornography and the sexual sin in your life. If you need, guys, if you need, because listen, when it comes to sexual sin, it doesn't matter what time of day it is anymore. I could not turn the TV on New Year's Eve. I did for a bit. I saw the commercials and everything else. I had to turn it off. I don't care if I get to see a ball drop. I care about what's going into my heart. And so if you need to get rid of something in order to make sure that you are right with God and that you are grieving over your sin, if you're not grieving over your sin, you don't recognize how wrong it is. And that's James's message. This isn't my message. This is James running into the, p- the picture and saying, wait a second, you've lost perspective.
grieve over your sin, particularly pride. When you think you're greater than those around you. When you just think that you're automatically superior to those around you because maybe you've memorized more scripture or maybe because you make more money or you went to a certain school or you have a certain degree. You know what? Everyone in this room is loved just as much by God. So he's calling out, please, oh, please, oh, please, grieve over your sin. My... um. I have some amazing children here on the front row, and one of them um, is what we call a sugar addict. I'm not going to call out names, but anybody have anybody had a child before who's a sugar addict? Like they truly think it's like a fruit or vegetable. Um, I remember when one of my children, again, I can't call names, but it was my second daughter, and she, I didn't say names. If you don't know my family, she's safe. Um, She's like two and a half years old, and I give her an old school sugar pop. Like it's that, that confectionery sugar that's all like crammed together. It's round, like blue or red on top and blue and red on the bottom. You know, anybody know what I'm talking about? It's a beautiful job describing it, right? And I gave her that thing, and I was like, hey, you should try this. And she put it in her mouth, and I said, okay, you don't need all that. We're about to have dinner. And I try to take it back from her. And I believe in Satan. Um, <laughs> I lost to a two-and-a-half-year-old girl. I couldn't get it away from her. She's like, this is mine, and I'm eating it. And she just, I mean, she just loves it. Here's the thing. I think some of us are behaving in a similar manner when it comes to our sin. And we are holding on to it. We will not let other people know that it's even wrong. This is what I choose to do. You can't tell me differently. This is not your life. This is my life. And we are holding on to our sin of pride and of arrogance and of pornography and of choosing the world over God and making sure we get what we want, even if we don't have to be moral or ethical within that. And we are holding on to our sin. And instead of holding on to our sin, we should be releasing our sin because our sin should disgust us. Because our sin does what? It separates us from God. And what you're willing to do about that sin says as much about where you are in your relationship with God as anything else is, speaking of who you are. He says, grieve over your sin. And he gives this beautiful book in in verse 10. And once again, he's just calling it out. Humble yourselves before the Lord. Humble yourselves before the Lord. He just keeps going back to it. Recognize you ain't all that, but the God of creation adores you. It's a pretty good life. Humble yourselves before the Lord. So he's calling this out. And so this is what I'm going to do. I know I don't have long. Praise team's going to come out. But this is a, there's a lot of stuff here. Like I was going to preach just James chapter 4, verse 6 today. And then verse 7 next week. and then Because there's so much here. And I don't want it to get lost. Please don't get it, let it get lost in your life. So what I want to do to help you process it, to think about it a little bit more, I want to give you just a few things that I think can help you 
move forward this week in hearing this word because it's a big word. This isn't just a, hey, God loves you. You're really a great in the way you are and just keep living life and laugh hard. This is, hey, you need to submit to God. You need to resist the devil. You need to cleanse your heart. You need to be grieving over your sin. And that's hard to do. And so some of the things I've learned in my own life that I just have to choose is this. This is the first. I want to make sure you hear this. Sometimes you have to choose to do what is godly. That's the first thing on there. You have to choose to do what is godly until your heart catches up. I've just learned that lesson. I, I got to be honest. Sometimes I don't want to jump into scripture. Sometimes I have no desire to pray. That's been tough for me lately. I don't know why. Satan's got a hold of something. God's got a hold of something. And um, I'm making myself, but I'm not desiring it. Uh, that bothers me to even say. But there's something dis- disturbing about that. And so I'm on, my, I'm on the watch right now. I'm like, okay, something's going on in my life. I cannot let Satan get a foothold. My God is greater. And these are the things I'm processing. And so I have to choose to do what is godly until my heart catches up. I'm going to choose what is godly until my heart. doesn't mean I want to, but I know the word, and I know what he's asking me to do it, and I'm going to choose it anyway because I know that that is pursuing righteousness over being right. Maybe you need to do what is godly until your heart catches up. Another thing is... Identify and repent of sin. And there, this is talking about grieving over sin, which obviously grieving over sin leads to repenting, right? And, and this desire to repent. But the other thing is I wrote on there to identify. Identify and repent over sin. The reason I'm writing the word identify is because sometimes we just say, God, forgive me for my sin, and we just blow by it, which is why it's still lingering and it's still there, and we're not really thinking about how it's impacting our lives and our families and our friends and our culture and our society and our homes and our neighbors and everybody else. And you need to identify it. And say, hey, this is a sin in my life. And I'm going to call it out. And I'm going to say, no more. Get rid of it, God. And that means you need accountability. That's why this men's group is so important. I'm amazed. We all have almost 100 men already signed up for this class starting a week from Wednesday. And it's, I'm, I'm telling you, I'm holding nothing back. We don't need more people holding something back when it comes to God. Amen? So you need to identify and repentance. And finally, uh, part of it is be overwhelmed. I choose to be overwhelmed by God's grace because I know my own brokenness. I, I am dumbfounded that God would love me. And I believe we should all feel the same. And if you don't feel that way, I, I would argue that you have lost perspective. Why? Because God gives grace to the 
we need His grace. But I want to tell you just briefly, I, I, I keep saying I'm going to keep telling you things briefly, and I just keep preaching. If you're uncertain of the grace of God, I'll give you a few things that the grace of God has led to. I'm going to read some scripture. It was for the grace of God, Hebrews 2.14, by the way, that Christ took on human nature that through death he might destroy him who has the power of death, that is the devil. That's the grace of God. It is for the grace that Colossians 2.15, it is for grace that God disarmed the principalities and the powers and made a public example of them, triumphing over them in his son, Jesus Christ. What's it mean for us? It means Romans 8, chapter 1. There's now no more condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. It means freedom. It means joy. It doesn't mean that you ignore the hardship. It doesn't mean you ignore the sin, the pride that's in your life. But it means that you're overwhelmed that God would deliver you from it. That is the grace of God. That is living in humility. That is the power of God. Sit in it. Wallow around in it. Whatever, Roll around. Whatever you have to do because you need God's grace. No matter what you've done, no matter how vicious you have been, God desires to redeem you. He desires to renew you. He desires to be in oneness with you so that you will grow the kingdom of God and that every ear will hear the precious name of Jesus Christ. Will you receive his grace? God, I come before you and I ask that you allow us, for some, maybe all of us, we just need the humility to acknowledge our need for grace, to submit to you to grow in you. And so, Lord, may we respond adequately, not only with our worship of song, but with the lives that we live and the words that we speak. May we hold nothing back. his church. Will you please raise a hand? God, we come before you and we promise to submit to your lordship. To resist the devil, to cleanse our hearts and our minds, to draw near to you. God, we know that you give grace to the humble. We are promising to do all that we can to acknowledge our own sin, to grieve over it, to hand it to you because we know our need of you. We know that we need you. We know this world, God, needs you. Send a wave of your grace and your mercy. Renew these friends, these brothers and sisters. Energize them to stand and to fight against the Satan, against the devil, against all that he is doing to pull us away. Energize them, O oh Lord. Renew their strength 
In the name of Jesus Christ, amen. Have a blessed week. We'll see you guys soon. Take care.